Will you please open a Bible and find your way to the book of 1 Corinthians? By way of historical context, as you're opening your Bible, the Bible itself is a book of books. So there's lots of books in the Bible, and as you are opening the Bible and you're, you're, you're flipping through, find your way to this book called 1 Corinthians. More than a book, 1 Corinthians is actually a letter. It's in a section of the Bible that has a handful of different letters that are written by different historical figures to different groups and some even to individuals. In the case of 1 Corinthians, this is a first century text written in the first half of the first century by the historic Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Hence, it's called Corinthians because it was written to this church in Corinth. And this particular church was struggling with internal relational issues that they had going on. Uh, you know, that's, that's life, right? Relationships and things get strained, and so stuff was going on in the congregation. And the Apostle Paul heard about it, and he wanted to write to them and try and help, help them process some things that were going on internally. Uh, as well, they were being bombarded externally by radical truth claims against the church uh, by those who were denying the truth of Christ. There were, there were people who were mocking them for their faith. They were, there were people who were saying things about Christ that weren't true. And so, so they had to deal with these external threats of people denying Christ and then kind of just internal life stuff that happens in any given family. Church is family. It can get messy. You know, and so, hey, let me write to you, Paul, Paul, Paul says. And, and, and he gives us 1 Corinthians. We also have 2 Corinthians. We have other Corinthian correspondences that he makes reference to. So he wants to help them. There are people who are saying things that are not true about Christ, and he wants to equip them to be able to engage that. Speaking of truth, in 2016, the Oxford Dictionaries uh, selected this phrase, post-truth. Have you heard this phrase, post-truth? In fact, post-truth in 2016 was the word of the year for Western culture. Post-truth is defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We've gone from, I think, therefore I am, to I believe, I feel, therefore I'm right, okay, as a culture. So we're in this post-truth moment. You fast forward from 2016 to 2019, the Oxford English Dictionary added a, a, a term called fake news to the dictionary. Have you heard that term, fake news? Uh, this is a term that had increased so much in the culture around 2019 that Oxford says, we're, we're going to add this to the dictionary. In fact, it had increased by 365%. The phenomenon of fake news in a post-truth culture, uh, fake news is really flourishing in a context where we're in this moment of post-truth, because people have lost the ability to think critically and to ground truth in objective fact as opposed to it being in subjective feelings. From 2019, when it entered into the Oxford Dictionary, all the way up till today, it seems that talk of fake news in the media is a daily occurrence. And so I thought it would be useful to play with this phenomenon of fake news for today's Easter message, which I have entitled, A Fake News Easter. Now, by way of introduction, muse with me on the problem of fake news in our culture, and then I will apply that to the holy day that is upon us. Uh, before we get there, let's read from the opening of the letter to the Corinthians that I've asked you to open to, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to, like the Apostle Paul, help us process this, the, the, the claims that come against us in terms of Jesus isn't true and what have you. 
I want to, like Paul was for the Corinthians, help us process that. So let's open the text. Let's read verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who, by the way, He is risen. That was good, that was good. So Paul opens the letter with an encouragement to the church. He gives thanks, he gives thanks for the people, uh, mind you, he, he's in relationship with them. These are, you know, he's using names like Sosthenes. He, they're, they're connected to one another. These are real people in real life with a real faith. As I said a moment ago, they were facing attacks for what they believed. They were wrestling with, how do we live this out? How do we live out this real faith in real life? Like us, they had fake news coming at them. I want to take you into the 15th chapter of Corinthians this morning in my message today as we sort of uh, take a look at Paul and see how Paul fact-checks the fake news with those who are denying the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus, who, who we come today, as Paul said, with all who in every place are calling on the name of the Lord. The faith was spreading around the world. It has continued today and it's spread. And we, we join with the saints around the world in calling on His name. I love the way that Paul describes Jesus as confirming them and holding them secure in his hands. It's clear as we read Paul that his faith was a real deal. This wasn't make-believe to him. This was bona fide fact and real experience. After all, Paul was an eyewitness of the risen Lord. So then who better to turn to as a primary source document for fact-checking fake news, Easter claims, in our post-truth context? Now, speaking of our context, we're surrounded by fake news, which is fabricated information that mimics and masquerades as real truthful news. And that impacts individuals in their thinking about history and their thinking about all sorts of things. And it impacts not just individuals, but also groups of people. And, 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 and then it spills more broadly over into society and, and culture, and it shapes the way large numbers of people see things and how they think about themselves, and not to mention how they think about people on the other side, those people, the opponents. So the people on the left have their ideas about being on the left, and they think about those people on the right, and the people on the right have their ideas about being on the right, and those people on the left. And with the spread of the internet in the last few de decades and social media just booming as it is, just about anyone can say anything about, about any topic and any person. So many are inundated by the information, which because of online algorithms, then we get caught into these echo chambers that feed segregated streams of ideas that feed onto one's particular narrative. I believe this and the internet just keeps on giving me this because I'm in that algorithm. It's no wonder that our nation is so divided socially, ethically, culturally, ethnically, 
politically, with our polarized politics and corrupt, charismatic politicians, fake news not only feeds our cultural divide, but it's also monetized. Fake news actually makes big money. It sells, and hence it swells, as people are willing to lie and, and to make their own kind of socio-cultural, political opponents, those people, look bad. People will intentionally be deceptive. We're in an era now where you can Photoshop images, you can falsely attribute statements to folks who do not make them. The fake news has gotten out of hand. One journalist wrote, and I quote, I'll put it in front of you, misinformation is not like a plumbing problem that you fix, it's a social condition like crime that you constantly monitor and adjust to. That's a sobering observation. Indeed, it is a social condition, really a symptom of a more concerning uh, kind of anti-intellectualism that has come in this post-truth moment in our culture. Studies are showing that we're actually getting dumber and, and dumber as time advances. And, and, and that then feeds into a lack of critical thinking skills so that people can actually discern truth from tales. Not to mention, it's symptomatic of deeper spiritual realities. These deeper uh, realities and issues stand to get more complicated in our day with the rise of AI and technology. I don't know if you've seen this in your feeds. It's in my feeds. Uh, there's all kinds of people, in particular in my hip hop feeds, there's people who have like, they're doing Drake. And uh, he's a Canadian rapper. Anyway, I picked on him recently, so I won't this morning. But anyway, Drake's got this really like, you know, distinct voice or whatever. And so uh, people have taken his voice and they're making rap songs with Drake through AI. They're feeding things through AI. AI is like writing college papers and, and passing master's thesis. And it can sound like anyone. It can uh, impersonate anyone. And so, so in an era like this, where you have these skilled types who can sit behind a computer and make a video of someone that looks just like them, and, and they can do whatever they want and make that person say whatever they want. This, this is we're in dangerous times with this. A bizarre and brave new world is upon us that stands to be more disorienting, more dehumanizing, and more dividing. And with our busy culture, most people don't have time to separate facts from fakes. Given the sheer amount of stuff on the web, even the fact checkers don't have time. And without good fact checkers, the fake news runs rampant. Hence, even with good fact checking, it'll still run amok because by the time the facts get into the people, they have already made their minds up and their emotions have taken over, which in the post-truth culture means you're going to be stuck there. And there's going to be intellectual and social gridlock. Okay, okay. What does all this have to do with Easter? Okay? He is risen. Okay, what, what does all this have to do with him being reason, risen? Well, inevitably, every year as the holiday rolls around, Christians are like, yay, it's Easter. Life and death and resurrection of Jesus, yay! And then here comes the Easter Karens who, you know, fly in. Let me talk to the manager. Uh, who's in charge here? You, I've been watching YouTube, and, and, and I've been Googling, and you know this Easter stuff? It's fake. It's not real. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You Christians, you should know better. You know, uh, we're in an age of science, and you should know better. So today in this message, I want to play the role of fact-checker and go after it. I want to follow the lead of the Apostle Paul as he writes to encourage the saints and also to equip them to engage in these ideas. 
As we begin, it is worth noting that Jesus of Nazareth is a historical figure. Even skeptics who don't believe his claim to be God the Son in the flesh, and those who deny the resurrection, even among those who deny he's not God, he didn't raise from the dead, right? among the educated historians, they will tell you he is a historical figure. That's just fact. Yet every year around Christmas and Easter, I'll see the fringe on YouTube, Jesus didn't exist. If you would like a source on this that you could pick up uh, to study further, I would, I would put this in front of you. It's written by Dr. Bart Ehrman. And the title uh, is, Did Jesus Exist? In this book, Dr. Ehrman gives evidence for the existence of Jesus. Uh, Ehrman isn't a Christian. Ehrman is a professor. He's a noted scholar, a, a, an eminent professor at, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's a formidable critic of Christianity. If you go on YouTube, you can see debates, some of the best Christian apologists that are out there. He's a, a formidable critic, as I said. But the one thing that he doesn't doubt is that Jesus is a historical figure who existed. According to Dr. Ehrman, I think the evidence is just so overwhelming that Jesus existed that it's silly to talk about him not existing. I don't know anyone who is a responsible historian who is actually trained in a historical method or anybody who is a biblical scholar who does this for a living who gives any credence at all to any of this. The fake news that denies the historical Jesus, you know, every year around the holidays is just that. It's fake. Now that said, among those who will admit the history that he lived, uh, there are those uh, uh, other matters of disinformation that come around the holidays. Around Christmas, of course, the attacks are on the virgin conception. You can't believe that Mary got pregnant, asexual reproduction, that just sounds crazy. And around Easter, there will be these assertions that, you know, Easter, that's just a pagan idea that uncreative Christians copycatted uh, to save egg on their face from their friend Jesus dying. Because, you know, they were following around, they were all into Jesus, you know, fanboys taking selfies with Jesus, you know, they're, they're just following him around, you know, and, and, and then he dies, and so they're like, oh, what are we going to do now, you know? And so, so they, they make this up, and they steal that idea from these other pagan religions that, whose gods are rising and stuff like this. That brings us on the outline to Easter legends. Easter is not a pagan copycat. Uh, skeptics point to bunnies and they'll, oh, look at your bunnies. Those are, those are from pagan fertility cults. Now, for sake of time, uh, I, I will spare us from a, a historical deconstruction on the origins of the bunnies, okay? Uh, the bunnies, the candies, the eggs, the whatnot, because all of those, and everyone ought to know this, is just North American cultural things. Uh, they're not artifacts of biblical or ancient faith. Uh, you know, the, the Easter bunny is, is, is like Santa Claus in terms of the North American context. There are things that will go back. There is a historical figure, St. Nicholas and what have you. There's things that will go back in terms of history. But th those things, are, those are absolutely irrelevant to us. Now that said, let's, let's focus then on what is an actual issue for biblical faith. And that is this targeted claim that Easter comes from a pagan figure, Eostor. Eostor is a pagan uh, goddess in northern Europe that skeptics like to say, oh, you Christians stole Eostor and you made that into Easter. No, 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 that's fake news. Actually, evidence shows that the word Easter comes into English from Old English 
translations of Dutch and German terms for the month that corresponded to the month of April, which was the month when Jesus was executed at the hands of the Roman government, and that is the month that we claim he rose from the dead. And so it's just in reference to that particular month. And yes, the month, like many months in Europe, are actually named after pagan gods. It's common knowledge that January is named after the Roman god Janus. March is named after Mars, the Roman god of war, and so on and so forth. The months, the days, they're named after those things. The fact that I mentioned that something happened in a given month does not mean that I'm copying the idea from some pagan source. That's absolutely absurd. It's ridiculous. It would be like accusing a person wearing Nike tennis shoes of worshiping Nike, the Greek goddess. That's just absurd. That logically doesn't follow. So then something happened to the historical Jesus in the spring season. And people in that culture referred to that season and that month as Eostor. That didn't didn't mean anything. That was just the word in their culture that they used for that time. And so early Christians would use the word of the time when it happened. So Easter's not pagan. Jesus is a historical figure. Okay, well, what about our claims that Jesus is God the Son in the flesh, who lived an innocent life for us, who died in our place because we're, we're sinners who've rebelled against this holy triune God who gave us life, and because we rebelled against the giver of life, he takes life back. What about these claims that, that there's this holy triune God and, and that we, we die because we've rebelled against him and, and that he's a loving God uh, who sent his son to become one of us, a man, and die in our place? What about that claim that there's God in the flesh who has an innocent life and dies for us to give us his innocent life and then rises from the dead to show that what he did in our place namely atone for our sins, was actually true and actually worked. Why do we believe this to be true in the face of skeptical claims uh, uh, that we shouldn't believe it? Well, that is a good question, and today's message will consider this and make a case for it. So to do it, let's transition from Easter legends to effective lies, move from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 into chapter 4, And we'll move along in our outline from A, Easter legends, to B, effective lies. Here I want to begin our exploration of the facts and or possible fakes by first considering why fake news exists, or more pointedly, how fake news is effectively produced and distributed. There are five key points on your outline that I've given to you this morning for making a a good lie. Uh, Now let me qualify this. You've come to church this morning, it sounds really weird. The pastor's up there teaching you how to lie. I, I'm not trying to hone your lying skills. So, so some of you, I see parents with kids in the room, you don't, you don't have to plug their ears. But uh, if anything, parents, I'm equipping you to spot your kids in, in their lies. So I'm not I'm trying to teach you how to lie. We're just looking at the psychology of deceit and how these things work so that then we can apply them to the claims of Easter. And I can make a case for you that Jesus is not just a man of history. He's God, the son of eternity in the flesh. And if you don't know him today, oh, by golly, he knows you. He's so glad you're here. And he has given me the task of sharing with you about who he is and inviting you to come to him. Okay, now, first of all, let's talk about deceit. The first thing that you see there on your outline is if, if you want to lie, it has, the, the psychology of lying is that it serves some benefit. So if you're going to lie, it has to benefit you. That, that's sort of obvious, right? Uh, isn't that the point of lying, right? If, if, if you meet a girl that you like, 
right? And you want to get her attention or whatever, right? And say you meet a girl that you like, but you don't have a job and you still live at home and, you know, you got to get, was it Jordan Peterson's book and grow up and whatever. You got the Peter Pan syndrome, but you meet this girl and you're like, oh my gosh, I want to impress her, right? And so you start talking to her. You're not going to say, I don't have a job. I dropped out of school. My ex-girlfriend has a restraining order on me. Can I get your number? (laughs) That's not going to work, right? If all of those things were true, you're you're going to cover it up. Why? Because that's not going to benefit you. It's not going to benefit you. You're not going to get the digits. It's it's not going to work out that way. I ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Would you draw your eyes at the at the 10th verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak. We are weak. Verse 11, To this present hour we are hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed, and we are roughly uh, treated and homeless, and a toil working with our own hands, which we are reviled and we bless when we are persecuted, and we endure. Verse 13, We're, we're slandered. We try to conciliate, and we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I thought you said, Pastor Matt, he was writing to encourage them. He is. He is. He's writing to encourage them. He's, he's writing to remind them, look, this is true, and, 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 and we have every reason to believe it to be the case, as he argues with them and ideas in the culture and what have you. You see, the Apostle Paul is making an appeal to the point that is before us that you lie about things that benefit you. This isn't giving us any benefit. The Apostle Paul didn't get a Dave Chappelle Netflix special. The the Apostle Paul, you know, had his YouTube demonetized. The Apostle Paul didn't didn't get a book deal. He didn't didn't even get an AM radio show. He got nothing. He's hard-pressed. Some of you are like, what's radio? Exactly. he's, He's homeless. He's hurting. He's humiliated. And this is the thing. Why do people tell lies? Why do people tell lies? You've taken a class in psychology? It's really simple. To benefit yourself. Whether it's just the simple feeling of being cool or, or, or getting attention right, of others or, 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 or actually getting what you want, right? That, 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 that's the psychology of it. I, I was born in the 70s. I grew up on a lot of 80s and 90s hip-hop. That is the golden era, as far as I'm concerned. But the, uh, the golden era has some, uh, it, it's got, it, it's got some, uh, some, some, some whack ones in there. And one of them in particular that I think of, Ice Ice Baby, Vanilla Ice. You remember the famous, this guy comes out in the 90s, and uh, you know, as a white inner city kid who was, who was you know, battle rapping and break dancing and everything, he ruined it for all of us, because that was the, the automatic line you could use to marginalize a white MC, you just call him Vanilla Ice. So when Vanilla Ice came out, I mean, the guy blew up with the Ice Ice Baby thing. He made all this fame, and he claimed that he was from the hood, he was living that gangster life, he was all about that gangster life, and then, of course, he got busted. And they found out he's a silver spoon kid, he's not about that life. And then, and then famously, there was that show in Living Color, if you remember, with the Waynes. Uh, Jim Carrey did this, did this spoof on Vanilla Ice, Oh my goodness, if you haven't seen it, go on YouTube, Jim Carrey, Vanilla Ice. It is absolutely hilarious. Roasted him, and his career was over. You say, Vanilla Ice, why did you make up all that stuff? Because he wanted to sell records. You lie for a benefit. Paul says, we got nothing out of this. And guess what? 
we're not walking away. Now, vanilla ice wasn't too cold, but I'll tell you what, Apostle Paul was too cold with that. You know, he's like, we're not walking away. We're, we're, we're going to die on a hill for this because it's true. Secondly, uh, we move from beneficial to broad. When you're trying to tell a lie, don't get specific with names or places. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's pretty obvious. I was a rebellious teenager. I'm very thankful that I had someone in my life who shared the gospel with me so that, so that as I entered from my teens into adulthood, I didn't continue in the patterns that I was, but I got a lot of scars from my teenage years of rebelling against God and denying Jesus and doing my own thing. Uh, but when I was living under my father's roof, uh, you know, if, if I was trying to get away with something, that's what you do. You don't get specific with it. Uh, hey, 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 you know, come in the house late. Where were you? Oh, I was out. <laughs> Where are you out? You know, uh, went, to, uh, went, to the, went to the movies. Uh, who are you with? Oh, some friends. <laughs> you know, you keep it really general because if you start naming names against specific what places, what theater, what movie, who was there with you, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Did you hear about Marley Jones? No relation to me, incidentally, Marley Jones, though we got the same initials, unfortunately, but Marley Jones. There's a whole Wikipedia entry on her if, you, if you're curious about it, but Marley Jones was the dean of admissions at MIT. She was hired in 1979. She was a successful author, too. She co-authored a book, here's the title, Less Stress, More Success, A New Approach to Guiding Your Teen Through College Admissions and Beyond. The Boston Globe described her as the most celebrated and outspoken admissions dean in American history. Now, it turns out she lied on her resume. She lied big time. She said that she went to three well-known universities, Albany Medical uh, College, Union College, and a, a Polytech Institute. Uh, and guess what? Because she was specific about it, she got fact-checked. People called those schools, and none of the schools had records of her attending. And so she got dimed off. And she lost her job, as she should have. But oh, the irony that you are the college admissions person, and you write books on how to get into college, and you didn't know. Get specific with the names. Someone's going to fact check you. Then your lie is not going to work. You got to keep it broad. Where, where were you? Oh, I was out with who? Oh, my friends. What were you doing? Having some fun. <laughs> you know, keep it broad. Thirdly, uh, along with broad, you got to have some backups. This is obvious. As a rebellious teenager, you know, that, that, that was something that was important. I got to have backups. So I got to have some good friends that my parents like, you know. I got to have good friends that my parents like and use the alibi. Hey, Dad, can I spend the night at my friend's house? Which friend? Oh, uh, Gatson. You know, his dad's the doctor. They, they got that nice house in Ladera. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 you can spend the night over there. Yeah, sure. Right? Uh, you know, who are you hanging out with? I got to have good friends in my life to, to act as alibis. I can't use messed up friends. That's going to give it away. Hey, Dad, sorry I'm late and I missed curfew. I, I was studying at the school library. Just ask my crackhead friend Jim and his prostitute sister, Jill. Right? That's not going to work. Uh, you have to have credible backups. If you don't have backups, you, as my kids would say, it's, it's sus. <laughs> I love that word. It's sus. I, I'm reminded of that lady. You guys remember that lady, Rachel Dolezal? She was the president of the NAACP uh, in Spokane. If you, if you don't know, it's a black civil rights organization, okay? But there was a huge problem that Rachel's not black. She was born with blonde hair and blue eyes, uh, and she covered it up with contacts and a perm and tanning and more. So in a, in a TV interview in 2015, the press found out about it, 
And of course, she couldn't produce her black parents to prove her claim. She had no backup on it. She actually had a picture of a black man who she claimed was her dad. And in an interview, the, the person interviewing her pulled out the picture and said, is this your dad? You know, and she's like, oh boy. <laughs> you know? And then, of course, you know, her white parents contacted the press and her white siblings and so on. Look, if you don't have backups, it's not going to work. Uh, further, fourthly, you got to look out, if you're going to lie well, you got to look out for the busybodies. you got to anticipate the annoying fact finders. This is obvious. Uh, I've shared with you a little bit. I was a rebellious teenager, wish I wasn't. Um, uh, but, you know, I had an older brother who, who wasn't. He was Nate Dog, we called him. Uh, <laughs> there was nothing doggish about him. Nathan was, you know, just academic. He was a beast, you know, he went to school, had a job and everything. So my older brother, though, he, he could dime me off for anything. And he was a fact finder. So if I wanted to get away with something, I had to watch my back for, for Nate Dog. Uh, because, you know, he's, he's going to find out. He's going to dime you off. He's going to tell dad. So you have to anticipate his moves. You got to think ahead. You know, oh, if I'm going to come home late, is Nate home? Mm, let me see. Let me, let me look through the window. You got to anticipate the, the annoying fact finders. We can think recently of the American politician George Santos, who's the U.S. representative for New York's third uh, congressional district. If you watch the news, you know he made a number of false claims about his life work history, criminal record, financial status, ethnicity, religion, education, and more. Uh, he apparently didn't think about the fact checkers. Uh, he said that he graduated from Baruch College, specified the college and the year, 2010. He said that he was a star athlete on their volleyball team. He didn't go there and he wasn't a star athlete. Santos claimed that he worked at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, but representatives for both companies said no, there's no record of his employment. Santos said his mom died in 9-11. That wasn't true. That wasn't the only terrorist act that he co-opted for fake news. Santos claimed that he had employees who worked with him who died in the Pulse shooting, if you remember that one, uh, which fact-checkers looked up, and none of the 49 victims who worked at any of the companies that he named in his biographies were, were there. Speaking of nightclubs, uh, fact-checkers also found footage of him dressing up as a, as a drag queen. I'm not making this up. Uh, and, you know, and they go, what, what's up with this? And he goes, I, I wasn't, that wasn't drag. You see, I was just dressing up as a, as a, wom a woman. You go, oh, okay. And, and then the fake news continues. Santos said he was Jewish. He said his grandparents survived the Holocaust. Uh, turns out they they didn't die in the Holocaust. Turns out he's not Jewish. When he was busted on it, he told the press, and I quote, I never claimed to be Jewish. I'm Catholic because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background. And so I said, and I'm, I'm quoting him here, and this actually came on in the car when I had my kids in the car. Where I was just listening to the news, and they busted out laughing on this. So, so this is a quote. He said, he said I, 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 just, you know, I just said I was Jew-ish, but not Jewish. <laughs> You're like, holy, you know, whoa, you know. And I wish this were an isolated incident. So, you know, if you're on one side of the spectrum, I'm not picking on your guys. There's guys on every side we can pick on. There are so many peddlers of fake news in politics, again, for the benefit of the power and the position. I saw this comic. I'll put it in front of you. It said, did you hear about the guy who lied about everything and got elected to Congress? And the person next to him says, you're, you're going to have to be more specific. <laughs> So, so later in an interview with Piers Morgan, Santos admitted that he didn't think people would find out about his lies. This is the point at hand. He didn't anticipate the busybodies. He, he, he said he was embarrassed, he was humbled to admit his faults. 
I'm just a regular person, Piers. I'm flawed like any other human being, he said. I've made mistakes, but I've made strides. And this leads to the last point. If the lie goes bad, you gotta bail. You gotta save your tail. You gotta get out of there. You gotta run. You gotta hang up. You gotta cop a plea. What's that over there? This interview is over. <laughs> you, gotta, you, you, gotta, you gotta do what you can to get out there to minimize uh, the harm that you've caused to yourself. All right, those are the keys to lying. Later, we're gonna come back to these uh, keys and we're gonna use them to examine uh, whether or not this Easter thing is fake news. But before we examine the, the, the fake news of, of the claims, we have to ha know the claims ourselves. And so you've got the book of 1 Corinthians in front of you. Move from, we've looked at chapter 1, chapter 4. Now turn to chapter 15. And here we're going to see Paul engaging. So we're moving into the text. We're going to see Paul engaging the truth claims of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Now again, as I've already uh, shown you and made reference to Dr. Ehrman and other scholars, he is a historical figure. Let me put in front of you another great intellectual, the atheist author and historian H.G. Wells, who said, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. Now historically, we have early and reliable records about Jesus and his followers. We have documents that are written by Christians uh, which uh, entered into the Bible that we now have. We also have documents that were written by non-Christians, uh, which if you have a good library, you can go to and you can check. So let's look at the checks. Let's consider the facts, the reliable facts on your outline. There are early and reliable records written by Christians and non-Christians. We can look at the history. We can get a clear idea of what Jesus and his followers thought. We're seeing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is getting into Easter matters in the 15th chapter. Uh, so if you're here today, I want you to understand whether or not you, you believe the Bible or whatever, this is still a book from history. This is a letter from history. The First Corinthians was written 20 years after Jesus' death. So, so you don't have to believe it, but I'm just saying this is the primary source of, of the people who were there 20 years after Jesus. And this source actually quotes sources that could date within a year of Jesus' death. So people will say things like, oh, you know, it's like the telephone game when you were kids and you line up and you start and you pass it down and by the time it gets to the end, it's all goofy and changed or whatever. That's like religion, you know, people just change it and change it. You say, no, no that's not the case. We have quoted sources with, within a year of the time of this. This is written in that same generation. It's not a telephone game, it's a written source further. Chapter 15, verse one, look at the text. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now understand there is a message that's being preached. I've laid out six of the essentials of this message uh, for sake of brevity here, so we'll move from reliable facts uh, to, to relational followers and the claims of these disciples. Number one, Jesus taught that he was God in the flesh and that he performed miracles in order to prove that. Uh, the early Christians believed in what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. They believed that there is only one God, but the one God eternally exists in three persons, hence the name Trinity, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. They, they believed that the Son became fully human while remaining fully divine, and thus he was able to perform miracles which served to authenticate his actual claim to be God. Uh, mind you, there are non-believers of Jesus in the first century 
who write and say he performed miracles. They, 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 they acknowledge it. They, like, we saw it, he performed miracles, everyone knows that, that's historical fact. If you, if you don't believe in God, however, then the history might not be compelling to you because you've written off beforehand with the presupposition there is no God, and if there is no God, then you say, well, then there can't be miracles or whatever. But I would invite you to open your mind and to reconsider the facts because you could say, well, there is no God, so there can't be miracles, but what if I can show you sporadic miracles that happen in human history? And here we have the pinnacle of them. God in the flesh doing miracles in public. This brings us to the next point. Jesus died on a cross in front of the public, and he did so for the sins of the world, and specifically for his people. Look at verse 3. I deliver to you as of first of importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, his people, according to the Scriptures. Uh, by the way, this claim is pretty much undeniable according to historical standards. Uh, and I, I say this because there are others who will say, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Uh, he died in the tomb. And the disciples, to save face, they were like, let's go in the tomb. Let's break in. Let's get his dead body and, like, prop him up. Do you see that movie, Weekend at Bernie's? I'm dating myself. But, you know, they prop up their dead homie and, you know, try to get away with the weekend before they get busted. Or, 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 you know, maybe it wasn't Weekend at Bernie's, but, but, but maybe they put him in the tomb and they just really beat the, you know, the living daylights out of him, but he was still, he, you know, he was still going in there. And so, you know, they go and they knock on the tomb. Jesus? And he's like, help me! You know, and, and so they, they get him out, they slap some makeup on him, and, you know, unrisen from the dead, you know. And he manages to convince everyone because they, they bandage his wounds and whatever and get him some electrolytes. Uh, no, no, that's not the case. Modern physicians have scrutinized the historical accounts and have ascertained from the data available that in the crucifixion, look up here, major arteries, major arteries are severed. You, you're going to bleed out and die. This alone would be enough to kill a man. The pain is excruciating. The accounts in the first century, specifically uh, the documents of, of John, record that at Jesus' death, the professional executioners stabbed him in the side to show that he was dead. And John's historical account records medical details that were not known at his day. The details have been confirmed by modern science. Allow me to quote from an, this is an academic, scientific journal. The Journal of the American Medical Association. This isn't the journal of Christians trying to prove their claims. This is the Journal of the Medical Association. Uh, dates the 1986, March 21st. And I quote, Clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right rib probably perforated not only the right lung but also the pericardium and the heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus didn't die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Now the point here is to, to show you, again, to check these sorts of fake news claims that oh, he, he died, but they did a little weekend at Bernie's, or oh, they just beat him really good, but they slapped some makeup on him and had him run around. I'm, I'm risen from the dead, believe in me. That, that just doesn't stand up to medical scrutiny. He died on a cross in front of the public, did so for the sins of his people. Thirdly, Jesus' dead carcass was buried in a popular tomb that was guarded, and three days later, it was missing. These are the facts. Look at verse 4 in the text in front of you, written within a generation of these events. He was buried, verse 4 says. Okay, this is a very early historical account that we have in front of us, a primary source. He, he was buried. He was, he was buried. 
And, and because this is an early source, it couldn't have developed into legend. We know from uh, studying history that it takes more than a generation for legend to develop. I'll quote for you here Dr. Ian Sherwin-White, who's a very serious scholar. He's in the British Academy. He's not you know, a Christian New Testament scholar. He's an ancient classics guy. He's Oxford University. He wrote this book up here, Roman Society and Roman Law. Uh, and he shows how historians can measure how legends develop. And it, it, it takes time for legends to develop. You have to have at least two complete generations for a legend to develop. So th this isn't a legend because we've got sources before that development. Right? If people are like, uh, uh, I saw Tupac at Fox Hills Mall, they're like, get out of here with that. Like, I actually, I actually know people who were like on scene and stuff. Like, it's in a generation. You're not, not going to get away with that. You have to wait for some time to elapse so that you can develop legend. So historically speaking, this isn't legend. It could still be a lie, you, you, could, you could say, and we'll examine that when we, uh, when we come back to those tests that I covered you in terms of the psychology of lying. Fourthly, Jesus was seen walking the streets saying that he was alive from the dead. Look at the text. Look at verse 5. He appeared to Kephas, and then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, and then he, uh, to, to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. By the way, fallen asleep is a euphemism for dead. In other words, he, there's lots of eyewitnesses. Some of the eyewitnesses have died, but many of them are still around. They, they're, they're, they're still alive. They're, they're, still, they're still with us. Jesus is walking around. We, we saw it. It's not a weekend at Bernie's. It's not a hallucination either. The psychological elements that are necessary for a hallucination don't fit the historical data. One, there are too many eyewitnesses. Hallucinations will happen kind of independently. You, you, we know psychologically that hallucinations happen from previous expectations. The disciples weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. They all scattered. They were all scared. They denied him. They ran. They were not expecting the resurrection thing. So you're, you're, you're not going to have hallucinations. Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know, uh, there's a body there. That's not a ghost. A fifth, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he alone had the power to forgive sin and that God vindicated his message and that he was divine. This is the, this is the claim of history. So look at verse 14 in the text. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then, then, then our preaching is in vain in your faith also. Moreover, we have been found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. And then those who've fallen asleep, those who died, right, in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why be pitied? Because, because going back to what we saw in chapter 4, they're homeless, they're hurting, they got nothing. The thing is, though, if, if, if this is real... They got everything. They got everything. It's, it, what they got is worth suffering in this life, what they're going to get in the afterlife. And more, more importantly than what they're going to get in the afterlife, more personally, is the Lord who suffered for them, who loves them, and who has changed their lives, and has placed His love in their chests. Look, look, this, this message this morning, I might be giving a defense for the faith, but, but this is not an, uh, you know, a mere apologetic. This is an invitation to come to faith in Christ. 
This isn't a mere argument for why you ought to. It's an invitation for you to. And some of you, some of you already know, and you've been putting this off for far too long. You've, you've heard these claims. You have Christians in your life who've shared these claims, and, and you've been putting off this decision that needs to be made right now to come to Him, to receive His forgiveness. You can have Him pay for your sins, or you can try to do it on your own, and, and that's simply not going to work out. And it won't work out because you, you, can't, you can't pay for a sin when you have sin. When, when you break the law, you, you, you can't get out of that by doing good works. I use this illustration all the time. If I, if I killed someone, I cannot stand before the judge and say, Your Honor, think about all the people I haven't killed, though. It doesn't work that way. Right? One violation of the law brings you under the wrath of the law. So what's true in a human court is true in the heavenly court, which is why you need someone to pay your debt for you. There are thousands of religions in this world. And what sets Christianity apart is it says to you, if you want to be reconciled to God, God's done it for you. God's paid it for you. Receive his gift. Cry out to him for forgiveness. Receive the gift. He's done it for you. You see, the other world religions say, if God's mad at you and you have to do this, you have to do this, don't do this, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. And, and if you get enough of the do's and not enough of the don'ts and the scales come just right, then, then God might, might be merciful to you. A system of works. The message of Christianity isn't due. The message of Christianity is done. He is risen. Jesus then commissioned his followers to share this message. Number six, he ascended it into heaven. There were eyewitnesses there who saw that as well. And he passed on this message. Okay, so we've considered what the message is. Now let's consider if it's true. Let's go back to what we looked at. A, was it beneficial? People tell lies to get benefits. Was it beneficial? Vanilla Ice wanted, wanted a rap deal. Dole's Owl wanted to run the NAACP. NAACP. Uh, Marley Jones wanted to be dean of admissions at MIT. Did you see that 2002 movie, Catch Me If You Can, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks? It was actually based on a true story. Leonardo DiCaprio played this character, Frank Abagnale, who was a professional liar in real life. Uh, he, he managed to get up to $2.1 million in 26 countries uh, using uh, eight different phony aliases. Yeah, look it up. It's just fascinating. Like, this guy knew how to lie, and he got the benefits out of it. Now, going back to Christianity, did they get benefits? No. They didn't get the benefits. What did they get? Persecution and death. We have 1 Corinthians 15 in front of us. You know what Paul got? You know what Paul got? He was beheaded at the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero for preaching this message. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, I, I sometimes think about, how, how am I going to die? You know, like, I don't want to go that way. The 12, the 12 apostles of Jesus, James was killed by Herod Agrippa with a sword. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew, Simon the Zealot, uh, and Philip were crucified. Thomas was thrust through with pine spears and uh, tormented with red-hot plates and burned alive. Matthew, my namesake, was beheaded. Bartholomew was flayed, 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 and then crucified. James was cast down from the temple, beaten to death. 
Uh, Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, was stoned while hanging on a cross. As if the cross didn't hurt enough. We're going to throw rocks at you. John is the only one of the 12 apostles who, uh, as far as history goes, died a natural death. But uh, though he didn't die as a martyr, he lived a martyr's life. He was exiled on the island of Patmos under the Roman emperor Domitian uh, for preaching the message of Christ. There's an account of, of him being boiled in oil once. What's the point? There's no motivation to lie. They're not getting money. They're not getting respect. Other religions that develop after the time of Christ and before, the leaders of those religions get stuff. They're military leaders. They take over territories. They get multiple wives. They get, they get stuff. They're balling, shot calling, making it. Not Paul. They're not getting anything. So uh, on those grounds, we have a good case that this is reasonable. Secondly, was it specific? Yeah, it's absolutely specific. In the text, he mentions names. He mentions locations. In the New Testament uh, accounts that we have, we get the names of all the historical people who are involved. The high priest Caiaphas. We know, we know the high priest Caiaphas served from 18 to 37 AD. In fact, archaeologists digging in Jerusalem, have, we have the burial grounds of Caiaphas and his family. These are, these are all historical people that we have historical documents for that we have archaeological evidence for. The Gospels are constantly citing people and places. Matt, where did you go? Out. With who? Friends. No, the Gospels aren't doing this. The early Christians aren't doing this. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 references 500 people who are still cruising around who saw these things take place. That's very specific. Okay, well, it doesn't work on those grounds. How about the credibility of the sources? Remember I was saying, you know, if I want to get away with something, i gotta get, I got to have a good friend in, in my life, you know? Um, teacher, I, I promise, my dog ate my homework. Ask the prostitute on the corner. <laughs> you know, it doesn't... It's not going to work. You know, maybe the dog ate my homework. Ask my hardworking father. Maybe, right? Maybe you'll believe the hardworking father, but not the prostitute on the corner. Here's the thing. You need witnesses that people are going to believe. If you're making it up, you can choose anyone. So if the gospel writers are making up that Jesus rose from the dead in their culture, they would pick someone who would be, you know, like the doctor or the hardworking father and not the prostitute or the scumbag. Now, what's the point here? Here's the point. In the gospel narratives, the people who they pick to be the first eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus in their culture doesn't make sense. Follow me. It, it's a bit of a chauvinistic culture in the first century. Uh, in their culture, they did not allow women to testify in court. This led to all sorts of social evils and abuses, you can imagine, uh, in their culture. Now, here's what's interesting. In the gospel accounts, they claim that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus were women which if you were making it up, you wouldn't make it up that way. It simply doesn't make sense. You're going to pick eyewitnesses who can't even testify for this? Uh, in, in that culture, women didn't have the same legal credibility of men. That, you know, what are, we, what are we going to do? Now, we've got 1 Corinthians 15 in front of us, and, and notice here in the text, there's no mention of the women in 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul is quoting from an earlier source. Paul mentions Cephas, the 12 disciples, the crowd of the 500. James, the apostles, he mentions himself. What about the women? Remember I told you he's quoting from something that's earlier. Well, it appears that earlier source perhaps had this embarrassment in terms of the culture and attacks being made against the church. You want me to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead in an anthrocentric context and you claim that women were the first ones who've seen it? If a skeptic said to an early Christian, I don't believe the resurrection, 
A persuasive encounter wouldn't be, well, the ladies saw it first. And so the early church's sources that they used for arguing with people included the names of the men who saw it, and that's what's being pulled from here. There was no reason to include in, uh, in these uh, apologetic sources the incidental details of the first eyewitnesses being women because people would have, in that cultural context, said that's not a good alibi, okay? Now, all of this is we're thinking about gender and ancient world and whatever. I just had to slip this in because it came up in my feed, and it's absolutely hilarious. We still do gender jokes today. Uh, hopefully, you won't cancel me. But I saw this gender joke about female archaeologists, and it goes like this. A majority of archaeologists are women due to their natural ability to dig up the past. <laughs> um, so, okay. The fact that women and not Jesus' male companions are presented as the first eyewitnesses lends powerful credibility to these incidents. Because if they were lying, they would not have done it that way historically in that culture. But if they're telling the truth and sticking to the facts, well, then this lends reason to the reasonableness of the claims that are before us. D, did uh, the fact finders prove it wrong? There are no historical accounts from the first century that fact-check this, or the second century, that fact-check this. There's no pesky fact-finders. There's, there's no one, you know, uh, searching Santos and finding out that he's not the savior. No one produced any evidence of this. Uh, let me put in front of you Dr. Paul Mayer. He's a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, and he writes this. If all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has ever been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, or archaeology that disproved this statement. Here's the thing. Even if you're careful with your lie, there's a chance that you can be found out. So you have to be ready. Which then leads to the final point. Did the witnesses save themselves? Remember, Santos had to kind of save himself. You know, people, when they tell lies, they save themselves. Years ago, Oprah Winfrey, in her book club, she endorsed this book, A Million Little Pieces, written by James Frey. You might recall this. So she endorses this book. The O factor kicks in, and this guy sells 3.5 million copies of it. It's a bestseller on the New York Times for 15 weeks. I need Oprah to click like on one of my sermons and see what happens. They'll probably just cancel her. But anyway, so it turns out that the book was a fake. The, the guy tells a story of his life about, you know, being an alcoholic for 10 years and a drug abuser and being in the mafia and going through a 12-step program and being wanted by the police and then getting his life all back together, you know. It turns out that none of it was true. And, 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 and he got busted. And Oprah, with egg on her face, what did she do? She apologized. She saved face. She apologized. And then you know what she did? She had Frey come back on her show so that she could confront it and, and, you know, save face with this. And what was interesting, when Frey came back on the show, he, you know, it's like, well, yeah, it was a lie, but, you know, we helped, think of all these people we helped with it. You know, there's all these fans who read the book and they got their lives together and whatever, you know. Think about all the people that we helped and they tried to save face with it. Think about the way our courts work. When a bad guy is caught, sometimes the court will make a deal with him. The DA might work out a deal. You've seen it on crime shows in Law and Order. Uh, the DA tells the bad guy, look, if you talk, we'll make a deal. Tell us who's with you. You know, and then the, the judge is like, you tell us. If you don't talk, we're going to throw the book at you. And so then you, you save face and you make a deal. 
The point here is that when you're busted, your survival mode kicks in. It's about self-preservation. But the disciples never worked out a deal. They never spun it. They never said, yeah, we made it up. We embellished a little, but, you know, we were helping people. You guys weren't helping people. Everyone's believing your message again. Their heads chopped off. It would be highly irresponsible for you to say you saw him alive from the dead, you saw him die, you saw him alive from the dead, and you got all these people killed for 300 years until the Edict of Milan in Western Europe. They never plead a deal. We have accounts of, of early Christians, again, in the first 300 years, suffering the most horrible of fates, the most horrible of deaths. No last-minute confessions. No last-minute denunciations. No one said it was a hoax. No one saved face. Instead, they willingly suffered because they believed not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but that he saved them and he loved them. The final point on the outline are the implications of all of this, which I want to get to. But before I do, I, I ask the sound booth. I don't know if James is back there ready to play a clip that came out, on a, uh, came out this, this Easter on a satire site that I think drives together all the points we've considered. So watch this, get a chuckle, and then I'll land the plane with some concluding thoughts. Are we here? I need 100% participation for this to work. Yeah, everyone's here. All 12, 11, 11 of us. Uh, what's the plan? Well, as you know, Jesus is dead. But stick with me, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. I have a plan. We going to steal his body okay okay i'm tracking with you what's next and then we're going to tell the whole world that you rose from the dead oh, oh, okay. oh you know i'm in i love it already <laughs> all right classic classic then what and then we're all going to get brutally murdered oh! Oh, wait 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 come again come again could you go over that last part real real quick so what? We get murdered. What's the problem? Uh, I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, don't don't get me wrong, Peach. I love me a good hoax as much as the next guy, right? Right? Uh, uh, what's in it for us? Do we all get riches, fame, and fortune first, right? No, no, get this. You're going to be hated, hated. persecuted, and reviled for the rest of your life! Oh! Fellas, uh, look, uh, I, I, I gotta be missing something here, right? <laughs> okay? I mean, why on earth would we do this? Can, can we start over? Oh, okay. We'll start from the beginning. Everybody, for John, yeah. the beloved disciple. So, okay. We go down to Jesus' tomb. It sounds good. This yeah. is really yeah. easy. Then? We pay off the Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb with their lives. Why, why would they do that? Then we somehow roll away the big stone that's in front of the tomb. Obviously, you have to move the rock first. Yeah. And then we steal his body. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess. Then we tell the whole world that he rose from the dead and we get brutally murdered for our troubles. <laughs> Epic break, bro. Peter, you rock. Okay, guys, and, okay, and then what? Then we all get killed. Come on. When do we see ourselves become exalted and praised? That's just it. 
You don't! What, what is happening? Anyone hear what I'm saying? This is the most idiotic plan of all time! Chill out, bro. I mean, do I really have to explain the joke to you? Look, it's that we lie about Jesus' resurrection, and then we all die. How am I supposed to chill out when our heads are getting cut off? Or worse, what is wrong with you guys? I thought the video captured, you know, sort of the main points. You're like, why did you just play the video and spare us that hour? <laughs> I'll land the plane quickly here. Implications in time. If you guys could get my PowerPoint back to that slide. A, reasonableness. There is a case for Christianity. I believe I made a good case this morning to show you the reasonableness of Jesus. Many people think that faith is checking your brains at the door and just believing the absurd or the unprovable. Friends, there is evidence here to be considered. And Paul gave evidence in this text. I, I gave you evidence this morning. I'm not asking you to close your eyes and invite Jesus into your heart because maybe it's true. I, I made a compelling case that this is reasonable. I've given you reasons why you ought to do this. Jesus said who he was, and, and he's the real deal. We're, we're not making this stuff up. Uh, secondly, repentance. There's a case for Christianity, but there's also a call to Christianity. Jesus' message wasn't just propositions that he backed up to say, hey, these things are true, but it was, again, as I said in my message, an invitation to receive him. To receive him means to trust him. To trust that what he has said of you is true and what he said of himself is true. What he said of himself is he's God in the flesh, he's the Savior. Uh, what he has said of us is that we're sinful and we need to repent, and we need to, to, to turn from our sin. And the good thing is that He is loving, and He will welcome us. There's not a sin that you have committed that, that, that He didn't die for on the cross of Calvary. He's died for all of your sins. He's paid for all of your sins. Jesus called people to turn from their sins, and to turn from the world system, and to turn from dead religion. And He warned that false prophets would come after Him. And many false prophets have come after him, and they're still coming today. And we're surrounded by the, the, the fake news of religions and politicians and, and the rest. But here's the thing about fake news and, and why it's so vicious is because it preys on some of our deepest human instincts and fears and, and felt needs and longings, which ultimately can only be handled in the historical Jesus of Nazareth, who again is not a mere man of history. He's God of eternity. Fake news is a mess because we are a mess. The problem of fake news is not going to improve because the problem is human nature. Many think that having uh, the government or powers control you know, the media or whatever, then, then that'll clean up the fake news. It won't. Because absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that'll just lead to companies and government doing different problems and creating different narratives. The thing is, we as humans, we're, we're selfish by nature. We're tribal. We're argumentative. We're gullible. We're convenience seekers. We're, we're, we, we trust ourselves, and we're, we're not quick to admit we're wrong. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a mere invitation to admit you are wrong. It is an invitation to be accepted by God himself and made whole in Christ. This is reasonable. The call of repentance is necessary. Our greatest problem isn't information. I've been using the metaphor of fake news, but hear me. The problem that we have isn't getting better fact checkers as it relates to Jesus and faith and God in these things. The problem is restoration. We began our sermon in 1 Corinthians 1. It speaks of Jesus saving those who call on his name. He gives them grace. He gives them peace. In 1 Corinthians 1, it speaks of his return. Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. He's going to make all things new. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And none will escape his justice. Again, if you murder a man, you can't stand in the courtroom and say, think about all the good things I've done, all the old ladies I've helped cross the street, all the people who I haven't killed. You will still have to pay the penalty for what you have done. And you will incur the wrath of the law. Again, what is true in a human court is true in the divine court. And he is coming back. You can be found at the judgment seat and pay for your sins, or you can come to his family table, be forgiven, reconciled to the Father, and experience everlasting life and love in him. And then when he comes to raise the dead, you will experience paradise lost and everlasting love. We're going to respond to this message by coming to the communion table. On the table, there are pieces of, of bread, little crackers, and there are cups of juice. Uh, Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. We meet on Sunday. We talk about Jesus. We invite people to come to Him. And we invite people to come to His table. You have every reason to come and everything to, to, to gain to come. Uh, and, and in saying come to the table, it is important that we come to Christ. That we cry out in our hearts, Oh, Father, forgive me for my sins. I've heard of your son today. I, I, I believe this is true. I want to trust him. Forgive me. And guess what he'll do? He'll forgive you. And he'll give resurrection to your life. He is risen. Let's pray and sing and have communion. Father, thank you for the veracity of this message that you have entrusted to us. We thank you that you have not asked us to check our brains at the door, but you have given us compelling reasons for coming to you. But Lord, as, as we know, the reasons why we don't come to you is not a lack of information. The reasons why we don't come to you is because we're stubborn and blind in our sin. Rather than admitting we're wrong, we're still making excuses. We make excuses for our, our sins, and it's, it's so unfortunate. Lord, in my own life, I can look back and see my sins and things that I regret, and I'm so thankful that you rescued me from that, and you brought people around me who could bring this truth and do it in a way that was intellectual, but loving, but compelling, and also personally challenging. Lord, I pray that you would challenge our consciences here today to get right with you and to receive the gift of the cross, the gift of the one who conquered the grave. Lord Jesus, we come to the communion table, and we're going to sing some songs because you're worthy to be praised. And we sing to you because we're so thankful for what you have done. As we come to the table and we partake in these, 
these humble little elements, Lord, uh, I pray that you would be working individually in each and every one here today as we're winding down our service, Lord. Be, be stirring in our hearts and draw us to you. I beg of you, Lord, do a supernatural work here today. Bring resurrection life to, you, to your people. In Christ's name, amen.